This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Legend of the Bones. Following in the footsteps of giants, Legend of the Bones is a chimera. A mix of old school tabletop RPG and dark fantasy storytelling. As its name might suggest, in Legend of the Bones the dice rule. There'll be no rerolls, no fudging the dice, no metacurrency. The roll of the bones will determine the character's destiny, and no one will be spared their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. Last time on Legend of the Bones. In the grounds of Kerudu, the party were entranced by the song of a harpy, which lured them inside the fortress, whilst only Knut, Bjorn and Arn were unaffected by the charm. Knut commanded his men to try and prevent the companions from entering Kerudu, while looking for means to disrupt the harpy's song. Seeing a bow slung across Talion's back, the Skarnay warrior seized the opportunity, and taking the bow, shot the harpy, causing it to cease its song and fly away. However, the party had already entered the fortress, where they were attacked by a group of snakemen known as Serpentines. At first, before the harpy's charm was broken, the companions were unable to fight back. A vicious battle ensued, in which Talion and Bjorn were injured, and Yora was slain. Yet it was, at that darkest moment, and perhaps because of seeing Yora fall, that the companions fought back with renewed fury, until at last they were victorious. Chapter 27 Part 1 Day 33 Afternoon Party Status Beric 21 out of 23 hit points Lena 13 out of 16 hit points Kier 8 out of 10 hit points Valen 9 out of 11 hit points Talion 7 out of 16 hit points Knut 20 out of 20 hit points. Bjorn, 6 out of 12 hit points. Arn, 12 out of 12 hit points. Spells available. Valen has memorized Push, Shield, and Soothe. Talion has memorized Poetic Prose and Resolve. The company stood about in silence. Heads bowed as Arn cradled the mutilated body of his lover. The warrior was sobbing quietly, his face buried in Yora's matted blonde hair. The savagery of the attack had left the young woman's torso cleaved open, exposing her internal organs. The companions had only known Yora for a few days, yet she had proven herself brave and loyal, and they had all liked her. But for the three Skarnay men, Yora's loss was felt all too acutely. For she had not just been a comrade in arms, she had been a friend. Knut moved to Arn and placed a hand upon the man's shoulder. Take comfort, my friend, he said gently. It was a good death. Yora fought bravely, 
like a true Scarnet. And now she feasts with the Fallen in the Great Mead Hall. Arn looked up at his lord, cuffing away the tears and snot. He was too distraught to speak, but simply nodded. Lena stepped forward tentatively. If it does not offend, would you permit me to offer a prayer for her soul? She asked softly. Knut looked at the cleric, though his expression could not be read. Your gods are not ours, and Yora needs nothing but a blade in her hand to earn her place in the hall. He explained, then added, But you have proven the power of your gods, so if it comforts you to say your prayers, it causes no offence. The cleric nodded her understanding, and then began to speak. Mother Naya, wrap your dark arms about her. Take her soul into your care. Deliver her from this world's evil. Free her from despair. Give solace in the shadows. Protect her in thy embrace, that she may find at last comfort in thy grace. As thou eased her passage into life, now guide her way through death, that she may dwell in the eternal realm, and there forever rest. And so let it be, now and for eternity. So we have our first party death, albeit an NPC ally rather than a player character. And whilst Yora has been a background character, I still feel saddened by her death, not least because she had the potential to be another strong female character. But this is the nature of the game, so now we must move on. Now, more excitingly, this is a level up episode for all of our four player characters. So let's get straight to it and start with Beric. First, let's roll the fighter's new hit points. Ah, a three. Well, that gets bumped up to a 4 min out, and with his constitution bonus, Beric's hit points rise to 28. Not bad at all. Now let's see whether Beric will benefit from some ability score increases. A roll of 6 on a d6 means that that attribute will increase by 1. Here we go. Strength. A 2. Intelligence. A 1. Wisdom. 3. Dexterity. A 6. Beric's dexterity increases to 10. Constitution. A 5. Charisma. A 1. Well, that was a modest level up, but more importantly, level 4 is a major milestone for fighters, as they benefit from a plus 2 to hit. So with Beric's strength bonus, it means the warrior now gets an impressive plus 4 to hit and plus 2 to damage. And boy, is the party going to need his prowess in the days ahead. Next up, Lena. Rolling a d6 for the cleric's hit point increase. A 4. Lena's hit points rise to a very respectable 20. Now for ability score increases. Strength. A 6. Well, Lena has seen her fair share of combat. The cleric's strength increases to 13, which means that Lena will now get a plus 1 to all attack and damage rolls. Intelligence. A 1. Wisdom. 2. Dexterity. A 3. Constitution. Another 6! That takes Lena's constitution to 13, which will confer a plus 1 hit point increase per level, making the cleric's new hit point total 21. 
And finally, Charisma. A two. Well, that was an amazing level up for Lena. But if that wasn't enough, the cleric can now pray for one second level miracle once per day. Now it's Kier's turn. Rolling a d4 for the rogue's hit point increase. A two. Kier's hit points increase to 12. Can he do better with ability score increases? Strength. A three. Intelligence. A one. Wisdom. Two. Dexterity. A two. Constitution. A three. This isn't looking good for Kier. Last chance with Charisma. A two. Well, that's very disappointing. Although Kier's these skills will increase modestly. Finally, it's time to level up Valen. Rolling a d4 for new hit points. A four! Fantastic! Valen's hit points increased to 15. That's amazing for a magic user. Will Valen be as lucky with ability score increases? Strength. A four. Intelligence. A five, so close. Wisdom. A six! Valen's wisdom increases to 10. Considering the mage started with a penalty in this stat, I am delighted with that result. But also this feels right and fitting, given how close he and Leno have become. Clearly her wisdom and their mutual feelings for each other has had a positive effect on the mage. Dexterity. A one. Constitution. Another six. Valen's constitution increases to 10. And finally, charisma. A five. That was an amazing level up for our mage, but it doesn't stop there because Valen also gets access to another second level spell. Now, regular listeners will know that through play, I sometimes introduce new house rules when it makes sense to do so, but also when it supports the world and law building that emerges through play. With this in mind, I've already extensively customized magic in Legend of the Bones, and I have now decided to take this a stage further and split magic into different distinct disciplines. This is because in Legend of the Bones, magic users draw their power from different sources. For example, Valen's magic is strongly tied to both the natural world and his own emotional state, whereas it would not make sense for a dark wizard who consorts with demons to draw their power in the same way. So going forward, I will have the following three disciplines of magic, and whilst there is some overlap in the spell lists, they are distinct. Hedge magic is the discipline attuned to the natural world. It is linked to the folk belief known as the Old Ways, and is practiced extensively in cultures considered pagans by the followers of the Nine. Mages practicing this sphere of magic could be seen similarly as the legendary mage-like figures from the Iron Age British Isles, for example Merlin, Nimue or Rhiannon. This is the discipline to which Valen's power is attuned. Arcane magic is the broadest discipline and is practiced by magic users of all dispositions. Arcane mages are focused on pushing the boundaries of what the sentient mind can achieve. Sorcery, on the other hand, is chiefly concerned with dark, malevolent magic, and is often practiced by those seeking power over demons and the dead. Sometimes known as demonologists, necromancers, or more commonly sorcerers, these dark mages seek to harness forbidden, malevolent knowledge in order to grow their own personal power. Magic users can draw magic from more than one discipline, but the wielding of hedge magic is incompatible with sorcery, and vice versa and a mage must permanently relinquish all spells unique to one in order to learn spells from the other. Finally, just to reiterate, magic users are very rare, making up just 0.01% of the population, and therefore the vast majority of people 
view magic users with a mixture of awe and suspicion. So in Pal and Moor, where the population is 600,000, there are just 60 mages living within the realm. So with that explanation out the way, let's randomly roll what Valen has learnt on the hedge magic spell list using a d12. A 2. Let's see. Okay, Valen has learnt the spell Revive and its reverse, Subdue. When cast, the mage revives an unconscious target, even if caused by magic. If the unconsciousness was caused by reaching zero hit points, then one hit point is restored. If cast as Subdue, the target is immediately knocked unconscious for one turn and cannot be revived by non-magical means. If the target is resisting, then a successful attack roll is required to touch the target. Well, that is exciting, although Velen will not get access to the spell until he is next able to sleep. Okay then, time to get back to the story. Chapter 27 Part 2 Day 33 Late Afternoon Party Status Beric 26 out of 28 hit points. Lena, 17 out of 20 hit points. Kier, 10 out of 12 hit points. Valen, 13 out of 15 hit points. Talion, 7 out of 16 hit points. Knut, 20 out of 20 hit points. Bjorn, 6 out of 12 hit points. Arn, 12 out of 12 hit points. Spells available. Phelan has memorized Push, Shield, and Soothe. Talion has memorized Poetic Prose and Resolve. Lena can pray for one second level miracle. Beric moved cautiously through the open archway from which the foul creatures had emerged into a small square chamber 12 feet by 12 feet. Only Kier accompanied him the pair leaving the others with the grieving Arn. The rogue had an arrow knocked and ready, though no sound could be heard from within. Beric's nostrils were filled with stale, musky air, and his eyes took a moment to become accustomed to the gloom. The floor was covered with filthy, rotting rushes, and in the centre of the room was a small table and four chairs. Upon the table were some wooden cups, a handful of silver coins and a set of bone dice, a pale shaft of light came from an arrow slit on the far wall, which offered the chamber its only source of illumination, and a stone spiral staircase led upwards. Smells like something's died in here, Kier remarked. If only that were true, Beric replied bitterly. Moving to the table, the pair collected twenty silver shillings, and Kier pocketed the dice before they approached the stairs. Beric peered up the spiral into more gloom, but heard nothing. Come on, he said softly, and proceeded to climb the stairs. They emerged onto the first floor of the tower. This chamber, like the previous one, had rushes covering the wooden boards, and an arrow slit through which the daylight bled. Four filthy mattresses lay upon the floor, whilst the stairs continued upwards again. Between two of the mattresses was a table, upon which stood a lantern and five flasks, whilst underneath was a small chest. Well, well, well. What do we have here? So far, K 
Kier has not had many opportunities to use his thief skills, so what better than a locked chest? As referee, I already know whether or not this chest is trapped, but Kier will need to make a roll to determine this. Fourth level rogues have a 25% chance of finding traps. Here is the roll on a d100. A 06. That tells me that Kier is very confident that this chest is not trapped. Next, Kier will attempt to pick the lock. His chance of success in this endeavour is 30%. Here is the roll. A 24. Well, that is a stroke of luck. Kier knelt down and began to closely examine the chest, and in particular, the lock. After a few minutes, he seemed satisfied and retrieved a small leather wrap from his belt pouch. Unraveling the leather, he took two tiny metal picks, each with a number of barbs and ending with a hook. Have you done this before? Beric asked. The rogue flashed the big man a grin. Of course. Trust me. Very well. I'm going to check up there. Beric nodded towards the upward stairs. Alright, be careful. The big man climbed the stairs, leaving Kier to his work. He inserted the picks into the lock and after a few seconds, there was a satisfying click. Charles play, Kier muttered to himself. Replacing his tools in his belt pouch, Kier slowly lifted the lid off the chest. Inside, wrapped in cloth, were two small glass bottles. Each was stoppered and contained a translucent blue liquid. At that moment, Beric came back down the stairs. Nothing, the warrior announced. Just the fouled nest of that creature. What do you make of these? Kier asked, ignoring Beric's report and instead showing the big man the bottles. No idea, but we know a man who will. Back in episode 26, Kier also found a vial of pale yellow liquid in the old blacksmith's forge, so I think it's time to determine whether Valen can correctly identify these potions. The mage has previously identified a potion of the same type as the blue liquid, and so I'm going to rule that he automatically recognises these as healing potions. As for the pale yellow liquid, I'm going to make an intelligence test for the mage, but given that he is not in a laboratory, I'm going to apply a minus two penalty, meaning that Valen needs to roll a 14 or less to succeed. A 16. Oh well. Unless he can find someone else who can identify it, Valen will need to wait until his next level up before he can try again. The two healing potions are given to Talion and Bjorn. They are healed for... 7 and 6 hit points respectively. Wow, they were really lucky rolls and sorely needed. Okay then, let's get back to the story. Chapter 27 Part 3 Day 33 Late afternoon. Party status. The party status is unchanged, except that Talion now has 14 out of 16 hit points, and Bjorn has 12 out of 12 hit points. The companions placed Yora's body in repose, wrapped in her cloak, before moving her outside the fortress. Kerudu was too cursed a place to lay the young woman to rest, and it was decided that should they escape the fortress with their lives, the company would take her body on the journey back to the Uvadaka. At first, 
Arne did not wish to leave his fallen lover, but relented when Canute vowed that they would have their vengeance upon the evil that dwelt within. Returning to the entrance hall, a brief inspection of the collapsed southwest tower yielded nothing but a handful of silver coins, found among the skeletal remains of two more snakemen, whose bones were half buried by the rubble. The way ahead then lay through the doors on the north wall of the entrance hall. The companions readied their weapons, as Keir placed an ear against the great wooden doors. After a few moments, the rogue turned to the others. Voices. How many? Beric asked. Dunno. These doors are so thick I can hardly hear. But I can just make out some chanting. Chanting? Lena questioned. She looked confused. Like in a temple? Keir shrugged. Maybe. But you'd know better than me. Then we could easily find ourselves outnumbered. My guess is that this door leads to the main hall, and if that's the case, simply opening the door could alert any number of enemies. Beric concluded. So we need a diversion, Keir offered. What kind of diversion? Knut asked. Keir shrugged again, and the company fell silent. Wait, Beric announced, and everyone looked at the warrior. I have an idea. This is one of those situations where I have to firmly put my player hat on. I rolled a hear noise check for Keir off mic, which is how he was able to hear voices beyond the doors. With that knowledge, it doesn't feel right that the party would just blunder inside. They need to use their brains as well as their brawn. Whilst I did not describe it in the narrative, when Beric went to the top of the southwest tower, he could see the roof of the main hall. He would have noted that the roof was damaged in places, and that would allow someone to potentially see down into the hall, and maybe more. Beric's plan is for Keir to climb from the tower onto the roof, and from there use one of the holes to conduct reconnaissance on the hall, and if the threat is great, then drop the lantern found in the tower upon any enemies below, with an aim of driving them towards the entrance, where the rest of the party will ambush them. First things first, I want to see whether anyone in the hall has heard the party's battle with the Serpentines, as this might undermine Beric's plan. I'm going to say that there is a 1 in 6 chance that they did. A 6. Okay, so the party are thus far undetected. I think this makes sense. The walls and door are thick, and as we've ascertained, those in the hall beyond are making noise of their own. Next, I'm going to make a climb sheer surface check for Keir. As a 4th level rogue, Keir has a 90% chance of success. Here is the roll. 30. Finally, I am going to see whether any part of the roof gives way under Keir's weight as he moves across it. I'll say there is a 2 in 6 chance. A 3. Alright then, time to find out what all that means. Chapter 27, Part 4, Day 33, Early Evening Party Status The party status is unchanged. The sun was beginning its westerly descent, as Keir and Beric climbed up onto the exposed third floor of the southwest tower, where the harpy had made its eerie. The beauty of the yellowing sky stood in stark contrast to the filth and detritus of the nest where the acrid stench of rotting meat and excrement 
initially caused the men to gag, until the sense of smell became accustomed to it. Beric handed Keir the lit lantern and two spare flasks of oil, which the rogue stored in his backpack. The pair had agreed on a number of hand signals, which Keir would use to relay information and instruction to the warrior, who in turn would report back to the rest of the company. The rogue looked over the crumbling wall onto the wood-shaped roof of the hall. There were several patches where the shakes were broken or completely missing, and the chanting of whomever was within could be faintly heard. Keir looked back at Beric. Watch for my signal, he instructed, before swinging his leg over the wall and climbing down. The wooden shakes creaked as Keir's feet touched the pitched roof of the hall, and for a moment the rogue stayed motionless, listening for a sound that it might give way under his feet. Then, keeping his body low, he moved slowly towards a hole, just beyond the middle point of the roof's length. As he came closer, Keir lay himself flat, should the timber be weakened in its damaged condition. Poking his head over the edge, Keir's eyes were met by a strange and chilling sight. Nine figures, robed in black, stood facing a dais at the back of the hall, their cowls covering their heads. Upon the platform was a statue, ten feet high, depicting a monstrous creature. Its lower parts were that of a huge, coiling serpent, whereas the upper parts were those of a beautiful, bare-breasted woman. But more intriguingly were the eyes, which were two crimson gemstones that glowed unnaturally. Behind the assembled figures, in the centre of the hall, was a pit, perhaps eight feet in diameter, though the blackness of the void made it impossible to tell how deep it was. The chamber itself was fifty feet wide and seventy feet long, and dotted about were a dozen or so statues of men and women, casting various expressions of shock and horror. Keir looked back towards Beric, who was still standing atop the southwest tower. The rogue flashed the fingers of his right hand twice to indicate how many enemies lay within, and followed with a thumb-down gesture to communicate his intention to the big man. Beric signalled that he understood before disappearing out of sight. Keir readied the lantern and turned his gaze back to the macabre scene below, as one of the nine figures, the one standing closest to the obscene idol, raised their hands and began an unholy prayer. Though eyes may be veiled, we seek thy abyss. Guide us in darkness, and venom sweet kiss. Sightless we seek, the other acolytes chanted in unison. In absence of light, our senses awake. For darkness embrace, our sight we forsake. When darkness prevails and shadows doth fall, thy martyrs be spared when death comes to all. Lowering his cowl, the apparent leader turned to face the profane congregation. <gasps> Kier gasped, for where the man's eyes should have been, Instead, there were two dark hollows, the skin angry and scarred, evidence that his eyes had at some point been put out. The man looked off, if you could call it that, to somewhere beyond Keir's field of vision. 
Bring the offering, he commanded. There was a scuffling noise, and then a huge snake man, probably seven feet tall, came into view. The creature dragged with it a young, dark-haired woman, who was struggling futilely against the immense snake man's strength. She was naked, save her undergarments. Her hands were bound and she was gagged. Tears rolled down her cheeks, and in her eyes was nothing but terror. Kier cursed. The giant serpentine had pulled the woman to the pit, and now he held her before it, a look of gleeful malevolence in its amber eyes. Nadra, our beloved queen, take this sacrifice as a measure of our devotion. Without thinking, the rogue seized his chance. He flung the lantern. Time seemed to slow as Kier watched it spin through the air towards the assembled acolytes. It smashed on the ground. There was an explosion of burning oil, followed swiftly by screams and chaos. Thank you for listening to Legend of the Bones. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you like what you've heard, then please do consider giving it a positive review in your podcatcher of choice. Once again, I need to shout out to my fantastic cast of voices. A newcomer to the show, playing the leader of the Blind Acolytes, is Russ of Yum DM fame. Russ is a writer, publisher, blogger and podcaster, whose D&D zine, D12 Monthly, is a fantastic resource for anyone looking to take their games to the next level. And the best part is that the PDF download is 100% free. Go to www.yumdm.com to find out more. Returning to the show, providing several voices for the Coven of the Blind Acolytes, is Jim Hurst. And finally, also returning to the show in the role of Canute, is John Cohen, creator of Tale of the Manticore. If you haven't listened to Tale of the Manticore, you really should. My sincere thanks to Russ, Jim and John. I'll put their various links in the show notes. While I'm here, I would also like to give a shout out to the Iron Realm podcast and its creator, Abel Enzo. The Iron Realm was the original solo play podcast, which launched this genre of hybrid storytelling. But not only that, the show could also be interacted with as a groundbreaking play-by-podcast experience. To aid this, Abel has produced a series of supplements available on Drive-Thru RPG, and the premium, patron-only version of his latest release, the Iron Realm Adventure Log and Strategy Guide for Chapters 131 to 140 features illustrations of the main characters by yours truly. You can get your hands on this fantastic resource by signing up at patreon.com forward slash the Iron Realm. Either way, I seriously recommend checking out the Iron Realm and hang on at the end of these credits for a trailer. With that done, you can also help me by liking or reposting new episode announcements or by recommending the show online or to a friend you really can't beat the power of word of mouth. Alternatively, if you would like to show your appreciation by buying me a metaphorical cup of tea, then I now have a Kofi page at ko-fi.com forward slash legend of the bones. Any donations will go towards the show's running costs. I'd also love to know what you think of the show, and I do respond to every message I receive. So with that in mind, you can contact me on X at legendbones. Mastodon at legendbones at ttrpg-hangout.social Instagram at legendofthebones Email at legendofthebones at gmail.com or go to legendofthebones.blogspot.com for show notes, house rules, character profiles, art, maps and more. 
Join me next time to find out what awaits our adventurers as the bones decide their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone. The following podcast is not intended for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Iron Realm. When all planes of existence fall to ash, there is only one realm that remains. The Iron Realm. Before you in all directions, deep in the dark, there lies the maze. The Iron Realm. Millions of miles of corridors, caves, tunnels without end. This is the ultimate dungeon. Orcs, gods, kobolds, trolls. Ready your sword, your spells, your crossbow, your warhammer. The Iron Realm. Keep close your companions, for they are your only hope for survival. Elf, fighter, wizard, cleric. There are no re-rolls. There is no way out. Yet here, in the dark, if any of the merciful gods still remain, you may find the strength you need to fight. The cunning you need to hide. And the luck you need to stay alive just a little longer. Iron Realm! Iron Realm! Iron Realm! I am your maze master, Abel Enzo. Get your dice and graph paper, and be sure to bring your friends. I'll see you in the realm. <laughs> Get the podcast at theironrealm.blogspot.com. There be dragons here.